Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city, and found as he had said unto them. And they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and said unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man, if he had never been born. Solemn words. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. From my reading, of the Gospels, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus Christ attended four Passover feasts in Jerusalem, including this one, which he is about to eat with his disciples. And since the Lord's ministry extended for about three and a half years, it means that he did not miss an opportunity to be at a feast. And I think that right here in the introduction, I want to make a couple of little applications because I think it's interesting um, that we see these uh, examples in the life of the Lord. If possible, we should try to be at each service where the gospel is preached. We should endeavour not to miss an occasion to be with the Lord's family when communion is shared. The Lord made sure that he was at the Passover feasts and that is a picture for us. It was certainly a divine ordinance from the Old Testament times that every Jewish male had to attend the Passover. And nowadays under the gospel, attendance at the Lord's table is not an obligation. But we should treasure 
and cherish these opportunities to hear the gospel, to share together in fellowship, to be uh, at the Lord's table where the Lord is remembered in his death, in his crucifixion, in his sacrifice. These are family privileges and they are an opportunity for us to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ and an opportunity for us to fellowship with the people of Christ. And it may be that we are separated by distance, but we know of one another's presence. We have become familiar with one another and we share a unity, we share a bond, we share uh, in these gospel truths that, that, that we are identifying with, that we are supporting, that we are upholding, that we are maintaining. And we are bound together in this great labour, this great work of the gospel. It is a spiritual priority that we should hear the gospel. And it is a blessing uh, to be missed by a child of God only in extenuating circumstances. Such practices of the Lord are not peculiar just to him or isolated to him in his time and in his place, but they're personal for us to look at and, and read about and think about and meditate upon and draw applications for in our own souls and in our own life's experience. They're exemplary for us all. Sure, our Saviour taught his disciples and us by the things that he said and also the things that he did and by the examples that he gave. His disciples, I am absolutely certain, realised the importance the Lord laid upon being where God promised to meet his people at the temple in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. The Lord knew that was where God had ordained and he would be there. And the disciples watched the Lord take these obligations seriously. And others will observe that in the Lord's people too. By such an example, we teach our children our priorities in life. We show uh, those around about us that, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't be there at that time. That's when we have church. That's when I worship the Lord. That's when I go to hear the gospel. I know it's not always possible to be at a service. And if you can't, you can't. But let us manage our lives around being under the sound of the gospel. Let us prioritise the worship of God. What could be more important? Be sure of this. If we are not careful to jealously guard such times as these, the devil will make very sure that our occasions of being with the Lord's people will be few and far between. And here's just another strand to this thought. Not only did the Lord conscientiously attend all of the Passover feasts during his ministry, he purposefully made preparations to do so. Now think about that for a moment. He made sure that all was in order 
for the feast to be conducted with due regard to all that was needful. There were practical things to be done and the Lord made sure that they were done. And there's an application here for us also, I think. The old men, when they're, when they're writing their commentaries and they're writing their, their treatises and their, their, their um, uh, studies in, in, in the scriptures, they often use the word improvement or improvements. And they say that there's an improvement here. Not that they're improving upon the scripture, but what they're saying is that we can take what we read here and we can better ourselves. We can improve in the way in which we think, in the way in which we act, in the way in which we deal because of the applications, because of taking ownership of these things practically in our own lives. And this is what the Lord's people ought always to have an ear to do, to be hearers and doers of the word of God. So there's something, an improvement here for us also. Let us, as did the Lord, prepare ourselves for worship. Let us prepare our hearts for worship. Let us ask the Lord to grant us his presence. Do we dare to rush thoughtlessly into the Lord's presence? Is it, is it a last minute thing? Is it, I'll get there if I can? Let's take this task seriously. This is the blessed privilege of access to God's table fitly spread. And I'm not just talking about the bread and the wine. I'm talking about the table that is spread in the presence of our enemies. If you were being invited to a, a, a formal dinner, um, you might get a, an invitation sent to you. And the invitation could say something like 7.30 for 8 o'clock. Now, I hope you know what that means. It means that you have to allow half an hour for everyone to arrive and be seated and be settled before the meal. Don't come running in at five to eight expecting to sit down at the table at eight o'clock. It's 7.30 for eight o'clock. And if we have a few extra minutes to sit quietly before the service, let us take and employ and use those minutes to ask for help for the preacher and to ask for hearing ears for us. The Lord made preparation and we should too. And I want to mention a third wee point, and then I've got another couple of things that I want to say to you by, by, by way of, 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 of points in this service. But um, just another little aside, as it were. Um, I, I, I called your attention yesterday in the introduction to a, a little phrase I used, the Lord's prescience and providence. That's kind of complicated language and I'm sorry if it 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 um sort of stumbled anybody but 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 it's it simply has to do with this what the lord provided and what the lord knew in this little incident is really quite amazing the arrangements for the upper room speak to us of the uh, the glory and indeed the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Miracles can be big or they can be little. 
little miracles are good miracles as well. How do we explain the Lord's knowledge of the circumstances by which this upper room was set aside? By which it was made available to him and to his disciples? Time and place and people and events all lay open to the Lord's view. And he who ordains all things and arranges all things. He knows the who and the what and the where and the when and the why and the how of every event and every purpose. In a busy pre-feast city, a few hours before the principal event of this Jewish religious calendar, a large upper room furnished and prepared, lay empty and available for the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is his prescience and his providence. This probably isn't in the list of Jesus' miracles, but perhaps it should be. Of course, we don't have the wisdom that the Lord had. But is it not a wonderful thing that we can commit the moments of our day and the years of our lives into the care of one who does? Peter and John, for it was these two who went to prepare the upper room. Peter and John, Luke tells us that. Peter and John might well have been anxious as they hurried into Jerusalem looking for a man with a container on his head in that heaving city full of people. Or maybe they just thought the Lord's got this under control. I've got three points that I want to make today in the remainder of the time that's at my disposal. The first one is, I want to think about Christ, our Passover, who is sacrificed for us. I want to think about the disciples' self-doubt and self-examination at the feast of the Passover. And I want to think about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So those are my three headings. Uh, we'll move through them quickly but I think that there's something interesting to be gleaned in uh, considering each of these three points and the first one then is Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. This first heading is, is actually a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 where the Apostle Paul tells the church at, at Corinth Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And it's especially remarkable, I think, that Paul should say that because the Corinthians were a Gentile church. Um, Passover was a uniquely Jewish feast and memorial. That's not to say that, that Jews didn't travel from many different parts of the, 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 the world at that time uh, in order to have the Passover feast and undoubtedly it would be known as being a significant event 
in the, uh, the, the, the calendar. But, but, but these Corinthians were not Jews. But the purpose, of course, was not to encourage believers to celebrate Passover, but to explain to the Gentile believer, the Gentile mind, that Old Testament believers, and for Old Testament believers, this Passover ceremony gave light, gave wisdom, gave insight about God's coming Messiah. And that New Testament believers, that's the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote, and you and I, New Testament believers can continue to draw lessons from the type, the picture, to more fully understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the salvation and deliverance of his people. Because we are the true Israel of faith. These people, these Corinthians who heard these words from Paul, were being directed to think about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ's work availed for them. And it drew upon that Old Testament picture of the Passover, which is nice because we are coming, uh, these things are coming together in our studies with, with uh, our, our plagues in Egypt and, uh, and what is happening here in Mark. But let me give you some examples in which, uh, in, in the way in which that picture of the Passover relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. When a Jewish man, we, we talked yesterday about Peter and John taking the lamb to uh, the, the temple to have it killed and its fat and blood placed on the, the altar. When a Jewish man took a lamb to the altar to be sacrificed to God, he knew that the lamb was dying in place of another. He knew that the lamb was dying in the place of another. And at Passover, when these lambs were slain in Jerusalem and then their, 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 their meat was cooked and the feast took place, in the homes of the children of Israel in Egypt was the memory, there was the recollection of the fact that the eldest son lived because the lamb had died and because the blood of the lamb had been shed and painted on the doorposts and the lintel of the door so that when the death angel passed and this this great this this uh, final this this plague that that culminated in all of the plagues when that death angel passed over the child in that household lived because the lamb had died now that was history, that was clear from the, the teachings, the doctrines, the revelation of God, the writings of Moses. And as God established this Passover feast, the uh, believing Jew, the worshipping Jew understood the significance of the death of that lamb on behalf of another. So far so good. But that was then. Why? were the lambs still being slain all these years later? 
Who, who, was the, who was the one that was saved now? What was the life that was saved now when, when, when Peter and, 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 and John took the lamb to the temple for this Passover feast? Was it unnecessary that the lamb was actually killed? Because there wasn't a life saved. It was a, a picture. It was a memorial. Why was there still the lamb being slain? We know that the blood of an animal can never redeem and atone for the sin of a soul. But this ongoing sacrifice was a picture that pointed to God's lamb, God's own lamb, Jesus Christ, who alone can cleanse from sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats, we could add in sheep there, but it's the bulls and goats that are quoted in in this verse in Hebrews, should take away sin, not the death of an animal. But every sacrifice and every Passover feast that recollected and remembered that original Passover and the deliverance of the children of Israel out of servitude pointed to, To the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's another aspect of the Passover. Which saw Christ fulfilling it. It was not any blood. But it was the blood of a perfect lamb. That must be used. And thus the lamb. The Passover lamb was set aside four days before its slaying. And it was examined to ensure that it was without spot. And without blemish. That typified the fact that it was pure. That it was perfect. That it was worthy to be slain. You see God will not accept sick animals. We learn about that in Malachi. God requires perfection. But that speaks to the perfection of Christ. As the worthy sacrifice for his people. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. For this reason, the redemption of God's people could be accomplished only by the offering of a perfect sacrifice. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that perfect sacrifice. The Lord is our Passover. And one more example, just to to round this off. The Passover lamb must be roasted before it was consumed. And it had to be roasted in a fire whole. No bone shall be broken. And it must be consumed with bitter herbs. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in his death was bruised and pierced and plucked and racked. But not a bone of his body was broken. And this speaks of Christ's life not being taken away by men but by but by. Uh, but but being laid down voluntarily by himself. It shows the unbroken strength of Christ under the weight 
of our sin. The curse of the law, the wrath of God and even the conflict with Satan. Not a bone of his body was broken. He withheld, he bore it all. And also at Christ's resurrection from the dead, which was just a few days from now. It was God's will that no bone should be broken. The pierced hands and feet and side were still open and visible. Remember what Thomas said. But not a bone was broken. And none of the bones of the natural body of Christ were to be broken. We can spiritualise that. No member of Christ in a spiritual sense, we who are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, no member of the body of Christ shall ever be broken off or cast away from his body. The elect are everlastingly united to their head. And the bitter herbs... Our Lord Jesus Christ drank the bitter cup of God's judgment against our sin and thereby propitiated God's wrath forever. He drained that cup and he drank it to the dregs. As the Old Testament believers meditated upon the Passover feast and the Passover lamb, Views of Christ's accomplishments and attributes would emerge under Holy Spirit guidance. And as New Testament believers everywhere reflect upon Christ's sacrifice, we see the perfections of his work fulfilled in the divine types. Because the Saviour died, God's children shall live forevermore, dwelling in liberty delivered from bondage of sin and guilt, freed from servitude to the law. So Christ is our Passover. And as the Lord was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, so we remember these delightful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that are revealed therein. Here's the second thing that I want to draw your attention to. And that is, as the Lord was uh, finishing the meal with his disciples, uh, he told them that one of them would betray him. And then we see something very interesting. We We see all the disciples exhibiting and expressing the self doubt and self examination. In verse 19 of of chapter 14, it says this, And they, that's the disciples, upon hearing the Lord say that one of them would betray him, they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by another, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And I want to mention Another striking matter from the the, the passage here in this context. Almost immediately, the disciples 
began to inquire as to whether they were the one that should betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think about that. Is that not strange? Is it not strange that each of them should should have this overwhelming sense of anxiety that the one to deceive the Lord Jesus Christ might be me, me, is it I? Sorrow filled their hearts at such a prospect. We're told that. That that was the very first thing. They began to be sorrowful. Some of the other uh, gospel writers speak about greatly sorrowing. They began to be extremely sorrowful. And yet, in, in that overwhelming sorrow and grief about the fact that they're about to lose their friend, still that residual thought remains. And is it going to be me that does it? They were committed to Christ. They had not only left all to follow Christ. They'd been following him for three and a half years. But they'd learned to love him in that time and to worship him as God. They would not have dreamt to have done such a thing, far less make any concrete moves towards doing it, as Judas had done. And yet here they were, doubting their own motives, searching their own hearts, appealing to the Lord for consolation and confirmation that this heinous sin was not of their doing. And I think that that response to the Lord's words is, in truth, the personal experience of all the Lord's people who learn to know the deceit of their own heart and the weakness of their own resolve under temptation. Because except the Lord hold us up, and except the Holy Spirit give us strength, we have learned that we are all capable of doing the most despicable things. Even to the denial and betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. The old adage is true. There but for the grace of God go I. It's said that that was spoken about martyrs going to uh, the, 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 the flames of, of their, uh, their pyres, their martyrdom. There but for the grace of God go I. But it is equally true when we consider the fact that it is only the grace of God that holds us back from committing the most heinous sins. And it's a reminder to us all that the sinful heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Peter was adamant that he would not deny his Lord, even to the laying down of his life. But he learned to his shame that his manly bravado 
melted before the questions of a little servant girl. But still, the question remains, why did Christ's words create such a similar response in all the disciples? And I wonder if perhaps the answer lies in the words of the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Corinthians and he's telling them about the Lord's Supper, the, 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 the service of remembrance that we sometimes call breaking of bread. And I wonder if there's a connection here. Uh, we, we know um, that uh, the Apostle Paul said, let a man examine himself and then let him eat. Now, while those words that Paul uses to the Corinthians are not part of the Lord's own language, and we're going to be thinking about this a little more uh, next week because that's when the Lord institutes the, his, his supper in the, upper, in the upper room, an extremely important event which came hard on the back of the Passover feast. The Lord didn't use those words. Those words are not recounted in any of the gospel writers' accounts of the institution of this service, this memorial feast. But Paul used them. And he used the, the term examine ourselves. Here we see that as the Lord instituted this supper in the, in the coming minutes following his statement about a betrayer amongst them, the attitude of the disciples in that moment was certainly one of self-examination. As they received the bread and the wine from the Saviour's hand, they were thinking, is it me? Is it me? And the lesson surely is this, that believers know that they are sinners. And this knowledge teaches us our need of a saviour. So that this becomes a blessed self-examination. That we look to ourselves and see our need and we look away to Christ and see his provision. That is the heart of our remembrance service. And it is one of the greatest mistakes in Christian circles today that men and women are taught to examine themselves to see if they are good enough to take the bread and the wine. When in fact we should be examining ourselves to see if we are bad enough to take the bread and the wine. The Lord's Supper is only for those who need a saviour and see in Christ's death the full, free, successful salvation that we desperately require. Self-examination does not hinder or discourage anyone from partaking in the Lord's Supper. It should encourage us to realise that we have a privilege and a right to go to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness. So, 
so much for the disciples' self-examination. Finally then, my third point, and with this we'll be done. This passage also teaches us some important truths regarding divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In in, uh, verse 21, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. What a solemn verse that is. And here from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is a clear statement of both biblical principles of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Men and women can wrestle with this all that they like. Though they should be humble enough to see that they do so from a position of ignorance and a state of fallenness. But then that's just not the way men think, is it? They think, no, we'll sit in judgment upon God's ways of working. And that is the reason why God's sovereignty and human responsibility are so much despised, even in professedly Christian circles. Our Lord Jesus Christ is telling us in this verse that he was set up in eternity as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The terms of the everlasting covenant required the Saviour's sacrifice and his blood. It required the voluntary assumption of union with his people and it assured fulfilment of their salvation. In due time, the written word of God testified to the certainty and the outcome of the covenant promises of God. And so that is why the Lord Jesus Christ says it is written of him. It is written in the eternal decrees of God. It is written in the revelation of Holy Scripture. It is written in the words of the Saviour himself as he spoke and revealed himself to his disciples time after time after time that he must go to the cross. He must go to Jerusalem and there be uh, 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 killed by the uh, chief priests and the scribes. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. The Son of Man indeed goeth to the cross and to death as a slain lamb, a spotless sacrifice and a redeemer of his people. Nothing could prevent or resist this divine plan, this eternally established purpose. Nothing was left to chance. It was going to happen. And right from the very beginning in the the prophecies and the promises all through the history of the Old Testament, the Lord's line, Christ the Son of David, was being preserved in the way in which God looked after the Israelites according to the promises to Abraham 
and preserved them all down through the years in the various countries into which they were taken, the various foes that they had to face, the kings who tried to annihilate them and, and, and destroy them. They were preserved. Why? Because the Christ child must be born from the line of David. Nothing was left to chance. There was no doubt. There was no uncertainty. There was no possibility of an alternative way or another outcome. This way was eternally fixed. It was decreed by God. It was predestinated before the foundation of the world. And it was ordained according to his purpose. And that is divine sovereignty at work in the salvation of the church. But, says the Son of God, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Judas Iscariot was that man. The man who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ with a kiss in the darkness of Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot was the man who betrayed Christ, his friend, who had given him so much, who had blessed him with so much, who had shown him so much and spoken to him so tenderly. Judas Iscariot found no forgiveness for his sin. He found no redemption for his crime and he carried his punishment to hell and today Judas Iscariot is in hell it would have been better for him had he never been born Judas acted from sinful motives he acted from greed and despite the many many blessings received from the Lord Jesus he is a testimony, the epitome of the hardness of the human heart, except for God's grace. This is speaking to us of man's responsibility. And the scriptures trace the effects of sin to their true source. And the scriptures distinguish between that which is precious that which is of God, that which is of grace, that which is to do with the church, and that which is vile. And in the fall of Adam, and in the pursuit of Satan and his principles. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, tells us that between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not, a distinction has been made. And in our Adam nature, the elect as well as the non-elect are all alike. Involved in the ruin of our fallen nature, our fallen state, and all of us opposed to God. And yet the church according to the wisdom and knowledge of God, at his good pleasure and for his glory, has been set apart, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ to the redemption of their souls, called by God the Holy Spirit to experience mercy, peace and love. 
And that work, that distinguishing work, is entirely a work of God's free grace. Without any connection or relationship with anything inherent in the part of the sinner. It is entirely of God's free grace. The church in her grace union with Christ is forever distinguished from the seed of the serpent. That division, that distinction has been made in God's eternal purpose. And there is no crossing over between the two groups. The seed of the serpent are forever excluded from any possibility of salvation. The church is forever sanctified and loved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The rest, they are of old, says Jude, ordained to condemnation. And the testimony of Scripture affirms this repeatedly. They being, as Christ says of some, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Men and women always imagine themselves to be neutral, free to act in a way that they choose and they decide. And a whole religious heresy has sprung up. That's true spiritual adultery. A whole religious heresy has sprung up catering to the whims of fallen men and women who believe themselves to be neutral and free to decide for Christ any time they like. Free to follow God if they wish, at their will, at their whim. But scripture dis describes Judas as a devil whom Satan entered into and took possession of. And the doctrine of reprobation, which is what we're talking about here, is a fearsome doctrine, but it is no less true for its awfulness. Well might Christ say, it would have been better were that man never born. Every man, woman, boy and girl is in one of these two states, either in the grace union with Christ or condemned already in their Adam nature with Satan. May God humble our hearts under his gospel and give us faith in Christ. Otherwise, we have no hope being without God in this world. Amen. May the Lord bless these thoughts to our hearts.